My name is uh, Dan Jacobson. I'm the campus pastor over at a Hobart Portage campus. You knew that we had a Hobart Portage campus, right? Fantastic. I send greetings to you from uh, Porter County. Greetings. I don't really know how that works, but there you go. That's how they used to do it, I guess. Uh, I, uh, I'm so excited for what God has been doing. Did you guys have a great Christmas? I hope you were able to come to one of our eight Christmas Eve services here at Bethel Church and just experience just joy and peace and the comfort of the gospel being preached. Were you able to come to that? I hope you were uh, fantastic. Out at our campus, it was a really special time for me because it was my first Christmas Eve here on staff at Bethel Church and um, just loved seeing the people of our campus gather together. It's like a family is being built out there, which is really cool. Uh, but what I wanted to share with you is that on Christmas Eve, we had three people for the first time come to Christ as a result of our services. And so we just <laughs> praise the Lord for souls being saved, people coming into the body. And, uh, you know, we fully recognize that one of the marks of our campus is that we are the multiple site part of multiple disciples. And uh, our vision statement here, multiple, to multiply disciples through multiple sites and multiple partnerships. And I want you to just be encouraged that multiplying disciples is happening here at Bethel Church. And to know that what God had said he would do in building the church, he is doing. And so I just wanted to bring that to you guys today as just a means for us all to celebrate together the work of God in our lives. Well, uh, the older I'm getting, which is incredibly old, The older I'm getting, uh, the quicker I find Christmas is just like sneaking up on me. Do you guys feel like maybe Christmas came and went just like this year? If you're like, no, that's because you're under the age of 15. (laughs) But if you're older, something about the Christmas season, the older you get, just the more you're like, whoa, it's here again. And uh, we've got little kids now. My wife, Kristen, and I have two little kids. And so we're watching a lot of the old, like, Christmas movies and some new ones as well. And I found myself, like, with an earworm of that one song always stuck in my head about my, my kids' Christmas movie. And there was another song that I'd just been ringing for, for days now. I can't believe it's Christmas. We waited for so long for Christmas. Can't believe it's Christmas. We waited for so long. It's been running since November in my mind. So if you could please get it out, that'd be great. But I remember sitting there with my daughter, Elin, watching this VeggieTales movie and going like, wow, I can't believe it's Christmas. Like, it's all ready here. And uh, we did the Christmas tree. We did the holiday parties. We did the family parties. I put the holiday light 93.9 FM on my car all the time. We listened to it in our house. I I was totally ready for Christmas, but something about this Christmas season just kind of like rushed upon me and has already departed from us. And um, I think when that happens, I don't know if that happened to you, but it's happened to me this year, and I want to just be honest about it. Um, I feel like some part of my soul was lulled to sleep this Christmas season. Just with the busyness of it all and the expediency of it all and just like the, it's already here. And that's dangerous, isn't it? Like for our hearts to kind of just like go through the motions of 
celebrating coming to Christmas Eve and preaching the gospel and hearing the gospel and being like, oh yeah, God came to earth. That's great. Right, right, right. And I fear that in this desire to take advantage of every Christmas season when it sneaks up on us like this and then leaves, there's something in our soul where we dive into the Christmas story so deeply and we zoom so tightly on the fact that Christmas is a time that we celebrate a baby being born. And yet, we can do that at the expense of realizing that this boy grew up. That the Gospels give us the life of Jesus for 33 of his years, we, we think. This miraculous, amazing life that he lived. That uh, he brought about freedom for his people. He changed the nations. He started a revolution, really. And I, I, I fear that in the midst of me jumping so deeply, so quickly into the Christmas season and only zooming in on the birth of Christ and, and possibly the death of Christ and missing a lot of the life of Christ, um, I, I wonder what it does to my formation of who Jesus is. Because the reality is we have 363 more days until Christmas. There was a groan there. Wow. <laughs> and we ask the question if that's Jesus yesterday the baby born in the manger the baby that grew up into a man the baby that died on a cross as a savior what do we do on December 26th what do we do on December 27th what do we do with Jesus today. And I, I want nothing else for us today than for us to put first things first. For us to remember that Christ is not just a baby that is relegated to Bethlehem in a manger. I want it for us to have our attention today so drawn in on the fact that there is a Jesus who is alive today and he changes our hearts and so my whole aim today, I want, to, I want you to know that I am totally trying to sell you on who Jesus is today. Today, that we might be able to take our gaze off of just history, but also recognize that Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning and, and, and applicable to our lives today. And so open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where I want to pull our attentions to today because I want to give us a couple snapshots to, to see a couple pictures of who is this Jesus that we've just spent a whole entire month celebrating his arrival to this earth, that we spent a whole entire month celebrating his death for our sins. But, but, but what is this Jesus doing today? And so in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 18, we see, uh, we see many different pictures, many different snapshots. These are just little like Polaroid glimpses into who Jesus is today. And I hope by the end of our time today, your hearts are so encouraged at this Jesus today. Amen? Well, I'll convince you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Are you there? Yeah, good. This will work really better if I ask you a question than you respond just would really help me out. I preach shorter messages that way too. 
Colossians 1.15. He, that he is a reference to Jesus. If you look back at verse 13, that's what Paul has kind of shifted the attention back to Christ in there. So verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. I just want to stop right there because that's our first snapshot of who is Christ today? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To be an image, it's to be the exact representation, to, to be the complete revelation that, that he is nothing short of God. Uh, Colossians 1.15 is the reverberations of Christmas, that God came in the form of a man and he, he imaged himself to us. He showed us what God is like here on this earth. And that's what we just celebrated. But to be an image, it means that he's more than just the physical representation of God here on earth. It's that he shows us exactly the nature of God, who God is, what God is like. I've often wished that when I was growing up, I, I, I grew up in the church and I understood a lot of the Bible stories, but I had these moments in my life where I was like, God, I understand these stories, but my faith sure would be strengthened a whole lot if Maybe just for like a second, maybe just for like a second, you could like, well, maybe not even a second, maybe like half of a second. That's all it would take. It's like half of a second is all that it would take for my faith to be really secure. Well, maybe not even half of a second, maybe half of a half of a second. If I had half of a half of a second, I would totally believe in you, God. I would have total like assurance that my faith was real and I could like stand secure in it. Have you ever had that thought before? Like, God, why are you hiding? Could you just show, just for like a, that'd be great. You ever thought about that? You've thought about that. It was that type of universal questioning that led Billy Graham to famously preach one time. He said, I've never seen the wind. I've seen the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. I've never seen God, but I've seen the effects of God, but I've never seen God. Now, if Billy Graham hasn't seen God. So it was this type of questioning that I had as I was growing up. And I remember so vividly the day that this was really put to rest in my heart through God's word. There's two verses that God used in my heart to help me understand the fact that uh, there, there's something else going on here besides just the absence of being able to see God. The first verse that I saw was Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not faith if I can see it. That inherent in this whole entire system that God has set up is the ability for me to believe in him without ever having seen him. And the second verse that God used in my heart was this verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, which says that he is the image of the invisible God. Paul is in a sense saying, do you want to see God? Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to have his majesty and his awe and his, his, his presence surrounding you in a very real way? Don't, don't look at anything else but, but, but Jesus. Fix your eyes and your gaze upon Christ and you will see perfectly what God is like. While nature and creation can reveal to us God's presence and power, they pale in comparison to the person of Jesus because he is the exact representation of God. 
Maybe you've seen uh, the great American musical, The Wizard of Oz. Have you seen this movie? Maybe you just saw The Wiz, which is like the modern version. Have you seen this? Yeah, okay, good. The last, the last service is too young. They didn't know. They're all like 12-year-olds, and they're like, Wizard of Oz, I don't have it. So The Wizard of Oz, you guys know this then. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. Uh, the Wizard of Oz is about Dorothy and her ragtag group of friends that she picks up along the Yellow Brick Road who are trying to find her way back to Kansas. And she stumbles into the, remember the scene where she stumbles into the throne room of the wizard? And she walks in and, and there's this great cannons of fire and this great big booming voice and cymbals clanging. And it's kind of what people think heaven looks like, I guess. And uh, up above this throne was this great big like holographic like image. Right? It was like the image of the wizard. But if you recall, it's not a true image of the wizard, is it? No, it takes Toto, the dog, to go pull back the curtain and to find this frail old man tinkering with a couple levers and buttons and really just, he's, he's, he's booming his little high-pitched voice. And we realize very quickly that the Wizard of Oz is a great disappointment. And friends, a lot of us treat Jesus exactly the same way. We imagine that he is just a smoke and mirrors God. We imagine that he can't possibly be God. We have no problem thinking that he was a man. We have no problem thinking that he must be a good teacher because we still talk about him today. But friends, let me tell you right now that he is the image that Jesus is the perfect crystallization, the, the, the perfect representation, the perfect manifestation of God and all of his perfect attributes. That Christ is not a smoke and God's, a smoke and mirror type of less than God. He is the true God because he is the image of the invisible God. I can't say it any better than to quote John 1.18 in which it says this, that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, who is Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, he is also the firstborn of all creation. Write this down, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, I'm curious to know how many people in here are firstborns? One, two, three, a couple. I'm sorry about your life, guys. <laughs> how many of you have the privilege of being the lastborn? Which means we got away with everything, right? Christmas was awesome for us. And uh, we think we understand what's going on in this verse because we have a concept for what the word firstborn means. It's obviously the one who was born first. But to understand this word firstborn that way is to completely miss the way that Paul is using it. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. That, to say that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, we have to do a little bit of just consistent Bible digging here. Paul is using this word the way that the ancients would have understood it. Uh, to be the firstborn was not a matter of chronology. It was a matter of priority. 
To be the firstborn was not a matter of a timeline of who was born first. It was a matter of value, of, of, of who was the greatest, who was the most prominent, who was the, the highest. It's a matter of distinguishing the most important overall creation. Now, this is exactly how God talks about David in Psalm 89 verse 27. He says this. God says, and I will make him, that's David, the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. And we know that David was not the firstborn. He was the last, which is another check mark for the lastborns. And David was not even the first king of Israel. He was the second. And so clearly this word firstborn has nothing to do with the chronology of the timeline. You say, Dan, why is this so important? Who cares? It's, it's incredibly important. Because there are people who are out there who will come and, and call themselves Christians and show up on your doorstep at your house and be dressed really nicely and they'll come in pairs and they'll wear a name tag and they'll carry their version of the Bible. Do you know who I'm talking about? You should be nice to those people. But I remember the day when they showed up at my doorstep and I really wanted to talk to them but my house was chaotic and I remember them flipping open to this verse and I told them I was a pastor and they asked me about, first, about Colossians chapter 1. and They said, well, how could you worship a God who is just a created being? Colossians 1, don't you read it? It says, the firstborn of all creation. If he's the one born first in creation, that gives him a special place, sure. But he, he can't be God. Jesus can't possibly be God if he's a created being. Which just be nice, that's, that's good logic, but terrible theology. It is an abomination to suffer through a lack of study and to draw conclusions on Christ that are totally inaccurate. Because if, if only just a little bit of study would bring us to Psalm 89, 27 to see that the way that this word is used is not used in, in, in that sense of historical chronolog chronological timing, but to mean a value and a worth God told David he would make him the greatest of the kings. And we see here, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is greater than anything that has ever even been created. Because he is the firstborn over it all. He exercises his lordship and his dominion and his power over all of creation. Because Jesus is the greatest Friends, Jesus is not just a man, he is God. He's the greatest of all that we could ever know or see. And look at verse 16 with me. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, everybody say all. All things were created through him and for him. See, Jesus can be called the firstborn over all creation because he is the creator. That Jesus Christ is the creator. Did you know that Jesus was around in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 when God was forming the earth and creating? Actually, the, all of creation is a Trinitarian act. That God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son are all present in the act of creation. And that action of creation, that act of creating, God did it and then he 
said it's good and he rested. And he is done creating today. And so what we have is God's good creation. And um, you guys don't know me super well, but um, I'd I love, love to just let you know my heart for a second. Um, I got some darkness in my heart. Um, I've always wanted to be labeled a creative genius. That'd be okay. But I never have been, and I'm really angry about it. I, um, I think my best creation ever was when I was six years old. I had some Legos and I made a car out of it. It was pretty cool. And um, I realized that a lot of you in here are very creative people. You can write songs, you can write poetry, and you can make art. And some of you are architects and you design buildings. In, in, in our world, we have tons of creative people. You drive downtown Chicago and you spend a whole entire day just doing this and going, wow, look at what we created. This is amazing. But I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that all of our best efforts at creating something, maybe you work in the mill and you create steel, all of our best efforts at making things are not actually creations. They're just adaptations of resources that we already have. Yet, yet listen, when Jesus created, when Jesus created this world. He created it out of absolutely nothing. And so while we can be creative people, we realize that the creativity of Jesus far surpasses our own ability. We see that Jesus as the creator is an incredibly powerful thing. I'm not a science person, but I think there's something interesting about science and creation. Um, it's actually been a really long time since I've been in a science class, so forgive me if I get, um, well, I'll get all of this right because I wikipedia did. it. <laughs> uh, science has in it the, the law of, the first law of thermodynamics. Hang with me, because I know you're all still in like your Christmas coma. The first law of thermodynamics, you probably know it as a law of the conservation of energy. It's um, this thing that happens. It's the best known law in science. Every time that you run an experiment, this thing happens and it's always proven. Uh, maybe you remember this. It's the law that says that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only be transferred. And uh, honestly, that explains why all of our NIPSCO bills are so high. <laughs> because it takes work to transfer energy into a usable source. So that if I need to make an alarm clock, I don't just create an alarm clock. I got to plug this thing into the electricity and it's going to transfer electricity into light energy and hopefully into sound energy so that I wake up on time. We understand that this totally works, but if you were to ask scientists why this thing happens, why we can't create and why we can't destroy energy, they would say, that's just not how it works. Friends, I believe it's because God has already created everything and he's finished with his act of creation. And so all the things that we see, he has created. And all the things that we can't see, he has created. Because Jesus Christ is 
the creator. Look at the end of verse 16 with me. You still with me? Did I lose you with the first law of thermodynamics? That's okay. That by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, I just want to mention this because we're about to walk into election mania. If you're not already totally engrossed by the chaos of our elections, you will be. And it seems like this verse is telling us that God is very concerned who's going to get the next nomination for the president of the United States. And while I think that's right theology, I also think this is the wrong text for that theology. Because thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, the ancients would have understood this as ranks of angels, the angelic world. There's an angelic realm that we can't see. It's almost as if Paul is telling us, listen, guys, everything that you guys see and you experience in your life, like that was created by God in Jesus. And everything that you can't see, this whole world of the invisible, even even the spirits that exist in this world, God created those two. He is the firstborn over all creation. He's greater than all of them. He exercises his power and dominion over all of that because he is the creator. Because all things were created by God, through God, and for God. Which means that Jesus is the creator, but he's also the goal of creation. Look at it one more time with me, the the end of that verse, verse 16. That all things are created through him and for him. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God because that is what they were created to do. Creation shouts God's wonder upon the earth because that is what God created it to do. The angels declare the holiness of God because that is what God created them to do. And as the prized possession of God's creation, I wonder if you realize that God is incredibly and intricately aware and concerned about the details of your life. He's totally aware of your trials and your afflictions, your worries and your desires. And because of that, because you were created in God, for God, he gives purpose to our lives. Friends, you have a purpose in your life that you were created in your creator, through your creator, for your creator. And it shows itself in worshiping God. How many of us in this room, let alone the people that we know, wander through our lives searching for purpose, searching for meaning, searching for something that makes us make sense of our world? How many of us wish that we could find satisfaction for our souls? How many of us wish that our days would have that intentionality behind them that's so the longing of our hearts. The only freedom comes when we find ourselves freely falling at the feet of Jesus. The whole point of our lives is to glorify God and to worship and surrender to him. 
Countless theologians over the centuries have recognized this. Augustine of Hippo, he wrote in his Confessions that in Confession 1, Book 1, Chapter 1, Page 1, Paragraph 1, he says this, he says, You have created us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And so friends, if your heart is not resting in the creator of your soul, then you will continue to find no peace in this life, no purpose in your days, no significance in your breath. You'll continue to be restless and bounce from job to job, relationship to relationship, city to city, even church to church, looking for your place, trying to find your way, only to know all along it's at the feet of Jesus. So listen, until you find Christ, you'll find no purpose because you're created in him, through him, and for him. John Piper is one of the heroes of our time. He's taken the same exact idea and kind of worked it into his working statement for his life and his theology. And he says this, he says, that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him because the goal of creation is for the creator. And I love that Jesus didn't just like create the world and then cut and run. Like Jesus didn't like spin the top and then kind of walk away and be like, all right guys, good luck with that one. But look at, what, look at what Paul says to us right here in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. He is before all things because he's the firstborn of, of creation, because he's the creator. And Jesus not only created the world, but Jesus is the sustainer of all things, that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. Um, to make this point, I just want to go science on you one more time, mostly because it's Christmas break and students need a little bit of refresher. Um, in our galaxy, our solar system is made up of a bunch of different stars and planets which revolve around the sun at different speeds and have different orbits with different shapes and different lengths and because of that, the distance between any planet at any given time is constantly in flux. Did you realize this? That our solar system is always doing this like dance around itself and is always changing, always moving, always in constant change. Uh, from the sun to the planet Mercury is 36 million miles, which might reframe the problem you have with your car that has got 100,000 miles on it. From the earth to the sun is 93 million miles. From the sun to Pluto, and back in my day, Pluto was a planet. I guess it's not anymore, so I want to give it its props. But from the sun to Pluto is 3.67 billion miles. And listen, listen. The outstretched arms of Christ sustains and holds everything together. On the complete flip side of that, we go macro level. I want to go micro level for a second. My wife and I used to live just down the street from uh, a very famous laboratory in uh, the western suburbs of Chicago. It was called Fermilab. Um, there was underground, Fermilab had it built about a four-mile 
particle accelerator. These guys made all of their money in life taking the smallest thing that we know of, which is an atom, and speeding it up around a track really fast, and then smashing it into another atom and making smaller things. Like, how cool is that? Right? And um, their goal was to unlock what they called and what they wrote about called the secrets of the universe. They, they wanted to find out what is, what is everything made of? What is really going on at the, at the microscopic, minuscule level of our world? And so, actually, what they did is that they're the people who are responsible for finding the smallest particle that we know of. And actually, it's not even a particle. It's a theoretical particle. Theoretical because we can't explain or we can't observe this in isolation. It always happens with another set of things. They, they called this thing a quark. And a quark is the smallest particle that we know of. There are three quarks inside of each proton and neutron and six in each atom. Aren't you really impressed at how much I know about science without ever taking a science class? And um, I wonder if you knew this, that an atom becomes unstable when the slightest gap of space closes in. Uh, because these quarks, these, these six quarks in each atom, they're not actually touching anything. They're just kind of like floating around itself. And, and um, whenever one of those things kind of bridges the gap and, and something like closes in on itself, the atom becomes unstable. And literally the nucleus of the atoms will collide into one another and they'll set off a chain reaction. And we call this an atomic bomb. Um, it's not very comforting to me to know that the universe is being held together by infinitely minuscule amounts of space that if one of these things touches the other, we all explode. And yet, if you were to ask the scientists at Fermilab, guys, um, after all your years researching this, trying to find the secrets of life and the universe, um, just one question stands out in our minds, like, why don't we all blow up? Uh, if they were honest with you, they would, they would just outright say, well, we don't know. But if they were trying to give you some sort of scientific answer, they would write something, which is what they've written, using really ambiguous language. They say things like, um, well, there's like this binding force that holds it together. Um, let's say it again. There's this like strong energy between these particles. This is the, the language that Fermilab scientists have written in their professional dissertations. And let me just boldly disagree with some of the most top scientists in all of America right now. No. Because I don't need four miles of a particle accelerator to tell us that what's holding the world together at a microscopic and macroscopic level is Jesus. That the creator has the power over the creation to sustain all of creation. And these gaps in our science that we can't understand, we, we, we leave and we say, how amazing are you, God, that you hold this whole world together. Now, friends, listen. If God can do that with solar systems and with atoms, can't he do that with your marriage can't Jesus be trusted with your job, with your relationships, with your kids? Can't Jesus be trusted with your life? 
And I wonder what we're trying to sustain ourselves upon, what we're trying to do to constantly get our arms around the unraveling nature of our lives if it is not Jesus. Because whenever we try and hold the loose ends together, they always seem to flail out more. It's only when we allow Christ to sustain our lives that he gives us comfort and purpose and peace. Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all. Everybody say all. Of all things. Are these helpful snapshots of who Jesus is today? That he's actively ruling and reigning today. Not just a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago, but today, seated on the throne. Today, this is what he's doing. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. And finally, we, we, we see this in verse 18. You guys got time for one more verse? Okay, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Uh, Jesus Christ, he is the head of the church. Can we all just heartily say amen? Amen. Paul often uses uh, this picture of the church as a body, where each member of the body carries out different functions for health and growth and operations. But what Paul is reemphasizing here is that at the top of our bodies is a head has the central control system. And our church is centrally controlled in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the head of our church. I think that means two things. It means that Christ is the head of our church means that our church has its foundation. It has its beginning. It has its source in Jesus. Do you remember in Matthew when, um, Matthew 16 when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter said, well, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded by saying, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Right? And then he says, for on this rock, I will build my church. And friends, that is what Jesus has been doing ever since he walked among this earth. The fact that our church has its source, its origin, all the way going back to Christ. You know, some of the things that have really disrupted my soul about ISIS um, among a lot of things, but one of which was um, you heard of, of this, this country or this small part of Iraq where Christians had been gathering for 2,000 years in this location. And this year was the first Easter that the bells didn't toll for Christians in this space in two millennia because of persecution. And I've often thought like, man, how cool would it be to have a heritage of faith that we can trace back all the way to the days of Christ? And Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 reminds us that we do. That Christ is the head of his church. Which means that every single time that we walk through the doors of this building into this auditorium to sit and gather together as the assembled people of God, what we're actually doing is we're assembling the way that Christ called us to assemble. That he has put this together in his divine wisdom. And so you're walking into church today being obedient to Christ because he has called us to do this. He is leading his church. He is the head of this church. We have our foundations upon Christ. 
The second thing that I think Jesus being the head of the church means is that not only does he give us our source and our beginning, but he also gives leadership to the church. He also leads the church. Listen, there's no one man who is alive today who is the head of the church. Do I need to say that again? There is no one man alive today. I don't even care if he's got his own nation state who is the head of the church. Because Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Which means that if a church has not surrendered its own name, its own ministry, its own desires, its own power, its own resources, to allow Jesus to do what he sees fit in that time and place in that location, we're wasting our time. I mean, you can set up chairs, you can turn on the lights, you can turn on the sound system, you can actually have somebody come and open the Bible, but if Christ is not the head of the church, everything is for nothing. And so we see today, friends, and be encouraged that in this church, we try to say, what do you want, Lord? How do you have us, how have you positioned us? What have you given us that we can be good stewards of your researches? How would you lead us, Lord, to go advance your gospel here and to care for the members of the church here? What would you have us do? So friends, I ask that you would pray for our church, that we would constantly be in subjection to the leadership of Jesus, amen? And I believe that's happening. One last thing. Are you still with me? Okay. One last snapshot that we have here, the last Polaroid picture of Jesus today, end of verse 18. And he is the firstborn from among the dead. That's a little creepy one if you're brand new to church. You're like, the firstborn from among the dead. That, I like all this other stuff, creating, that's cool, sustaining, that's cool, I need that. Even the church thing's fine, but like the dead, he came back from the dead, What? And so if you're new to church, yeah, we actually believe that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead, that this was a historical t- t- uh, space-time act in which Jesus came back to life. We believe this because the Bible says it. We believe this because God's people saw him alive, and they wrote down this account. And we believe that Jesus Christ is alive today. Firstborn, again, does not mean chronology. This doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person ever raised from the dead, remember? Uh, What this means, though, is that of all the people who were ever raised from the dead, and surprise, there have been a few. Think of Lazarus, for example, who was raised before Christ was raised. That of all the people who have ever been raised from the dead, the one penultimate supreme Resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus Christ because without his resurrection, without Jesus the Messiah dying for our sins and being resurrected to a new life, we are still trapped in a body of death. Without Christ defeating death, we'd still be subject to sin and its penalty. But thanks be to God. Thank you, God, that you raised Christ from the dead, that the tomb is empty, but the throne in heaven is occupied, right? And that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they'll be saved. So you can place your faith in this life 
on the one who is the most important person who has ever come back to life. His name is Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn among the dead. And finally, let's finish this out together. Let's read this together. Could you read with me in your copy of God's word? Colossians 1, the last part of 18. That in everything, he might be preeminent. And... um, At the risk of totally discrediting myself, I just want to come clean and let you know that I have no idea what that word preeminent means. I looked it up in Bible dictionaries. I looked it up in very credible sources. I spent hours on this one word, digging into old Gnostic heresies, digging into all this stuff. And at the end of my conclusion, I realized that while the ESV, which is the version of the Bible, the English language that we use here, um, the NIV might be a little easier to understand. It just simply means this. It means first place, the winner, the best, the highest, the most valued, that Christ would be the name that is above all names, that his life would be the first Life above all lives that are modeled after. That he would be the first leader in this church. That his death would be the highest death that we see for our salvation. That his resurrection would be the greatest resurrection that we look towards. And so it means this, friends. Jesus Christ alive today, the first thing first means this. That Jesus has to have first place. That he's most important, of highest value, superior to everything, most famous and comparable, majestic, ultimate, unequal, that Jesus is the superlative of all superlatives. And I didn't think I would get an amen there, although I should have. Um, And here's why. Because if you're anything like me, we hear words like that, that are like big words, like superlative words. And, and we hear them, and it's almost as if we've got this like special magnetic force, this little shield around our minds that protects us from anything powerful penetrating us. So I hear the word that Jesus is ultimate, and it's like, bing, falls down flat. No idea what that word means. Jesus is supreme, and it's like, nope, Sean, that, I don't know that one. I got nothing. No. I, I think in our day and age, our, our, the way that we use words has so totally lost their meanings. Inflation is not a finance problem. It's a language problem because we have so inflated our words that they have lost all of their meaning. Like we use superlatives and other things when we like literally don't need to. Literally. I find this in myself all the time. I, I go on Twitter and I see people are just pounding out like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And then I, I go home and I record the Bears game. I still do that. I know I shouldn't. But I record the Bears game and sometimes the DVR doesn't record the last like five minutes of the game. I'm like throwing the remote across the room like, ah, oh, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could have ever happened in the world. Well, it's not the worst thing that could have actually happened in the world. Just being a part of the Bears is the worst thing that could have ever happened (laughs) in the world. And so we use language in a way that we just don't really understand anymore, do we? Like, when I hear that Christ is ultimate, I literally think Frisbee. 
And when I hear that Jesus is supreme, I think of him in Taco Bell terms with like a little sour cream and cheese on top of him. But thanks be to God in his wisdom and his foreknowledge that he knew these words were not going to affect our souls. And, and thanks be to God for Paul and his wisdom who, who, who penned the words of Scripture as he's been building for us these six different pictures of Christ that we can firmly plant our feet upon.